Let me ask you a question. How often are you dissatisfied? When you are, what does it look like? How does it change you? That's the question that we're going to ask from our text this morning. If you weren't here last week, we are in our second week of looking at the book of Haggai, a little celebrated minor prophet of the Old Testament. This is part of our sermon series on small books of the Bible and the big messages that they convey. You might have felt like, why would we put Aaron through that long of a passage for reading? But we've actually read the entire book of Haggai over two weeks, just two chapters long. Little context, the people have returned from exile in Persia to the holy city of Jerusalem. And when they returned, they found that the city was in total ruins, including the temple, the place that had housed the very presence of God. And the people were overwhelmed with the work that needed to be done, so they just began to sort of focus on themselves. They built their own lives, they built their own homes, while the temple was lying in ruins. And that's how it remained for nearly two decades, until Haggai came with a word from God, basically saying, you've misplaced your priorities. It's time for you to rebuild. And miracle of miracles, the people of God actually listened and obeyed to Haggai's word. And that's where chapter 2 picks up what was read for us today. The people are working on the rebuilding of the temple, but after, one, after a short while, one predominant emotion sets in for them. Guess what it is? Being dissatisfied. Being dissatisfied. I struggle with being dissatisfied at times. I'm not ashamed to say that. I think of the times when I cook a nice full meal, but I really can't enjoy it because one element of the meal is under-seasoned or overcooked. That bothers me a lot. I think of how hard it is to stay in the kind of shape that I would like to stay in. I think of those days when I have 30 unread emails and I really work hard to chip away at those emails and respond to as many as I can, and then I walk away from the day with 30 unread emails somehow. I understand that feeling of being dissatisfied, as I think most of us do. But this is a fairly layered form of dissatisfaction that we see in the second chapter of Haggai. In verse 3, Haggai says, Who is left among you that saw this house, the temple, in its former glory? And how does it look to you now? Is it not in your sight as nothing? We can't really be sure, but it seems as if Haggai is speaking from the perspective of someone who actually saw the temple in its former glory before its destruction in 586 B.C. If that's the case, that makes Haggai a relatively old man at the time of this prophecy in 520, likely over the age of 70, which was pretty old for that time. If he in, is indeed an older man, then the picture of Haggai and his message comes into clearer focus for us. He was an older man looking back at the glories of this nation, a prophet filled with a passionate desire to see his people rise up from the ashes of exile and reclaim their rightful place as God's light to the nations. But here they are, deeply dissatisfied, and Haggai does not seem to blame them for that. He had seen Solomon's temple, a building that was without rival in the known world, Solomon's temple was the, the paramount expression of God's presence with his people, and Haggai witnessed that. Perhaps some of the older builders who were involved in this project had seen 
that temple as children and remembered it as well. The rest of the builders, who were younger, would have heard unending folkloric tales of the majesty of Solomon's temple. So it's understandable that dissatisfaction might set in for them. It's important to know that the greatest source of discouragement is not that they couldn't build the temple or they were begrudging of the task that they had or they felt that Haggai's words for them were unfair. No, the greatest source of the people's dissatisfaction and discouragement is revealed as the comparison between the pre-exilic glory of the temple and its present inglorious state. This was not mere circumstantial dissatisfaction. This was really spiritual dissatisfaction as well. They were part of something that was supposed to be a highly significant spiritual event, rebuilding the temple. But they just weren't really feeling it. And that's where I'd like to take a break and, and, and talk a little bit about us, you and me. As we read this text, this is my entry point into the text. Being dissatisfied is a normal human emotion, but it seems that Haggai is, is addressing spiritual dissatisfaction as much as he is any other kind of dissatisfaction, which is something that I think most of us can relate to here. I've seen it in many different ways in my life, and I hear about that in your life as well. What causes spiritual dissatisfaction? This sort of dryness that we feel, this sense of, I'm just not really feeling it. Well, let me suggest three things in this text, and I think also in us. The first is sentimentality. What causes us to be dissatisfied? The first thing I think is sentimentality. This is the most obvious source of dissatisfaction in the text here. They were looking back on the golden age of the temple and they became discouraged. We often compare the present with the past and we become dissatisfied or even disillusioned with our present experience. The same is true for our spiritual lives, true too, right? I can tell you of one time in, in college with a hundred other student leaders when I had the best hour of worship that I've ever had in my entire life. It was totally impromptu. Our speaker for the retreat, a guy named Dieter Zander, he found a, uh, an out-of-tune, dusty piano in the corner of the retreat center and began playing. We didn't have hymnals. We didn't have projected words. We just sang the words of the songs that we knew, and we kind of hummed the rest. But we sang for an hour with no breaks, and nobody wanted to stop. Nobody was leaving found myself on my knees weeping and singing, and I haven't experienced worship quite like that, I don't think, since. I can tell you about a time when I was deeply in God's Word. My junior year of high school, I'd gotten really serious about my faith, and my friends had started sort of distancing themselves from me, and the Bible became my best friend. I would rush home from school, and I would sit on the couch in our living room, listening to music and reading God's Word and journaling and pouring over it, and then we would have dinner, and oftentimes I would go back to that spot again because I just couldn't get enough. I've yet to recapture that sort of fervency in my devotional life since. I could tell you about the, the coolest church experiences, the best sermons, the most powerful prayer services, and I'm sentimental about them, and that's okay. I'm guessing that you have experiences like that as well, experiences where you felt God's presence and nearness in an overwhelming way and you have memorialized those times in your, in your mind and in your heart. And recapturing them becomes an elusive and fruitless task. 
So that's the first one. A second source of dissatisfaction comes from high expectations. The people of Israel had very high expectations when they returned to Jerusalem, the holy city. When they found the city in total ruin and not shining, not the glorious city of history, they were discouraged. Add to this that so many people had stayed in Persia rather than returned to the holy city, that, that the city was only partially full and not glorious. That led to their dissatisfaction. This was not the spiritual high that they were expecting when they returned to the holy city. Now, some of us are more prone to high expectations than others. You don't need to out your spouse here if they're one of those people. Even in our faith life, I think some of us are prone to high expectations. I took a Sabbath uh, morning uh, uh, last week, and I was really excited to, to get to read. I had, I had some stuff on my mind and my heart I wanted to read. I wanted to be in God's Word and journal and pray. So I went to a favorite breakfast spot, and I found the booth in the corner that nobody was by, and, and, and I was hungering for meeting with God that morning and, and dreaming about some things that were uh, on my heart and that I was praying about in my life. And about two minutes after I sat down, this large corporate group entered the restaurant and took over every single table on my side of the restaurant. And the table closest to me housed the loudest group of 10 women I have ever heard in my life who clearly hadn't seen each other in a long time and were so excited to catch up. I was so distracted I couldn't even read. God, what was with that? I had plans this morning. Why did that happen? And that's a mild illustration, right? I've gone through long periods of my life where I have expectations of how God is going to work in, in, in my faith life, and they are consistently not met. Every once in a while, I'll hear someone say, I really need to be fed at church, and I just wasn't this morning. This is a telltale sign of high expectations, by the way. We design our services here so that God might feed your soul. We hope that that happens. But if that's the barometer of your faith formation here at church, it's li it likely means that your expectations are too high. Third reason that causes us dissatisfaction for some of our faith lives is a general restlessness. I say some of us because not everyone is plagued by this kind of restlessness. Some of you here get bored easily. You know who you are. You like to experience new things. You like to explore new arenas. So if things move too slowly or are too predictable, you get itchy and restlessness sets in and you end up being dissatisfied. We don't see this restlessness necessarily in the text, but I think it's fair to infer that restlessness set in for some people. Rebuilding the temple was a, was a tedious task that took a really long time and if they weren't really feeling God's presence in the midst of what they were doing, the text does tell us that, I'm guessing that some of those who were prone to general restlessness were ready to bail at this point. I'm generally not a restless person um, by nature, but I have learned a lot about patience, realizing that God often does good work in my life throughout routine and, and regular practice over an extended amount of time. I might desire quick pivot points, but God requires what Eugene Peterson calls a long obedience in the same direction. Sentimentality, high expectations, restlessness. These are the most common reasons for us being dissatisfied in our spiritual lives, our faith lives. So what do we do about this? First of all, I want to note that these in and of themselves are not sins, 
Such reflection on the past or greener grass on the other side is not abnormal or wrong. It's a pretty normal thing for us to feel this way. Haggai himself agrees with the older members of the community that this present reality does lack the glory of the past at this point. There's something sweet and good about longing to experience the glory of the past fall afresh in the here and now. Having high expectations can lead to excellence and and certain virtue. Being restless can guide us towards necessary changes in our lives. However, when such reflection on the past or high expectations or restlessness leads us to inaction, that's when we need to hear the message of Haggai 2 again. Haggai says, that there are three primary things to all who are dissatisfied. And this comes straight from the text. Don't give up. God is with you. And God can see a future that you can't see. Here's where it is in the text, starting in verse 4. Yet now, take courage, O Zerubbabel, says the Lord. Take courage, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Take courage, all you people of the land, says the Lord. Work, for I am with you says the Lord of hosts, according to the promise I made when you came out of Egypt, my spirit abides among you. Do not fear. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once again in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land and I will shake the nations so that the treasure of all the nations shall come and I will fill this house with splendor, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The latter splendor of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give prosperity, says the Lord of hosts. First, God says through Haggai, if you're dissatisfied, don't give up. Do not give up. Keep working. That's the first thing he says. If you're dissatisfied in your faith life today, don't stop trying. If you're feeling dry in your faith, don't stop coming to church. If your prayer life feels neutered, do not stop talking to God. This is not an external command for the people, but rather it's a heart command. It's a command to the heart. If you are discouraged, push through that discouragement and dissatisfaction with all of your heart. This is well within the tradition of the prophets who regularly encourage heart work before any sort of physical action or life action. This is not duty for duty's sake. This is heart work that needs to continue. Our heart needs to remain open to the Spirit's work, and we do that by continuing to work. Then God says the second thing. First is work. Second is, I'm with you. Don't give up. I'm with you. This is such an important word for the Israelites. It's not just a simple motivational tactic or a kind word from God, this is a stern statement of purpose. He is saying, I am here with you now. Don't spend your time missing the old days or comparing yourself to somebody else or their situation. I am here with you now. I haven't left. I am present. You see, one of the realities that we need to own is that every second that we spend pining for the past or drowning in high expectations are seconds that we are likely to miss God's presence right now. We are over, when we're overly sentimental 
or we're paralyzed by high expectations. We are trying to control how God is going to show up and how God is going to work. What if rather than looking back towards past ideals or, or seeking to be fed, we simply sought God in every new day and with every new endeavor? Might we see him more clearly if that was the case? I have to imagine that indeed we would. But God is saying something even more profound when he's saying, I am with you. The dissatisfaction began in comparison to the, to the, present, uh, the comparison of the present to the past glories. But this, I might remind you, is God. He was God of the past, just like he's God of the present. God is not consigned to the past. He's just as present now as he was then. So when I look at my life and I look back on those highlights of my faith, has God changed if I'm not feeling it in the here and now? Has he changed since I sat on my couch with, with my Bible and couldn't get enough? Is his presence lessened here and now in comparison to that incredible worship service that I experienced and I remember so well? Could God have spoken through that noisy restaurant? Of course, I am the variable factor, not God. God is unchanging, but I'm fickle. I'm prone to wander. I'm the wild card. We can't afford to place God in some other time or some other place when he is right here, right now, working, waiting. And that leads to the third thing that God says to his people and to hear us here to us today. He says, I can see a future that you can't see. That unchanging God of the past was there at the beginning. He accompanied those first people out of the wilderness and to Jerusalem and to the temple. He shook the earth at Sinai and he still shakes the earth today. He promises that the glory of the temple will return and it's going to surpass the previous glory. This reminds me of when Jesus does these incredible miracles and then he turns to his disciples and he says, you, my friends, will do even greater things than these. And then he promised them the gift of the Holy Spirit. When we're dissatisfied and we, we hear a promise like this, what does it mean for us? For me, it encourages me to, to be in the moment with God and to ask him to expand my vision and to help me think, to believe, and most of all, to dream with him. When I hear this promise that God, at the point of our dissatisfaction, if we're, if we're willing to recognize him and continue to faithfully work, he's going to begin to shake things up and bring forth unthinkable blessing. How can we not dream with a God like that? How can we not ask, God, what is it that you are about to do? So, my brothers and sisters, to all who are dissatisfied, I invite you into a moment with God right now. Don't stay in the past. Don't drown in high expectations. Don't get restless. God is with you. Continue the work of pursuing him. He is unchanging, and he promises even greater things. As we head to the communion table this morning, I want you to be fully in this moment. 
don't compare this moment to any other moment of your life or any other moment that anybody else has ever had. Don't let your expectations drown you. Let them fall by the wayside. Choose Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus was there when God shook things up, and he, through the great gift of his spirit, is preparing to do even greater things. So, 